0: This morning, our scripture comes from Daniel chapter 3, verses 14 to 29, and Pastor Bill will be preaching a sermon entitled, God's People Resist Compromised. I'll read this passage for us. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, backpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men, who even took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Do we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered to his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way.
1: Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our teaching series this morning in the book of Daniel. It's a study where we've been learning that God has an agenda for this world, that he is intentionally planting his people among the nations, and that by doing that, he's extending his kingdom into the nations. It's a way of blessing the nations. He's giving them a chance to see through his people— the nature of who he really is, the nature of what reality is all about, and he's giving those nations an opportunity to adjust their lives so that they can be in step with the way that the world actually is. It's an agenda that will benefit anybody who takes him up on it. It's also an agenda, however, that produces conflict, an agenda that by definition has to produce conflict because his kingdom is breaking into a world that's tried to live without him. And that means that the people in his kingdom hold different fundamentals than the people around them, different non-negotiables, different values than their society. And so by design, God's agenda often puts his people at odds with their society. Now, sometimes that society is relatively tolerant of those differences. Other times it's not. It's intolerant, and it creates a flashpoint. We see one of those flashpoints today in chapter 3, Of the book of Daniel. Now, up to this point, the Babylonians have been relatively tolerant. That all changes today, not because God's people are doing anything differently, but because the king, Nebuchadnezzar, puts himself on a collision course with God. In the last chapter, chapter 2, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. He saw an image, a statue that was made up of different kinds of metals that represented the different nations. It was a dream that said, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold of that statue. Dreamit said Nebuchadnezzar was important, but that he was not enduring, that Babylon would not last, that what Nebuchadnezzar built would not last, but that other kingdoms inferior to his kingdom would come and replace him. In chapter 3, it looks like he's resisting that interpretation of history. He's not interested in it. And so in the first half of the chapter that we did not read, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of his own and that word image is very important it's the key that ties chapter 2 and chapter 3 together chapter 2 uses the word image five times chapter 3 uses it 11 times you almost get to the point where you're tired of reading it Nebuchadnezzar has set up his own image but the one that he makes does not look like the one that God told him about in his dreams His image does have a gold head, but it also has a gold chest. It has gold thighs, gold legs, and gold feet. He's rejected the idea that he's only the head. He wants to be the whole thing. Not king of a temporary kingdom, but king of a lasting one. He sets this statue up on a plain outside of Babylon, and then he calls all of the civil service workers together. They have a formal ceremony there to dedicate the image, and when music plays, they're all supposed to bow down to this image. And they are declaring physically, publicly, their unconditional loyalty to the state, to Babylon. More specifically, they're declaring that loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. They are to declare that they bow to his will and to his desires. That in their lives, he has no rival. That out of all the other loves and commitments and loyalties that they do have, he is number one. He's completely sovereign over every other tie that they might have. Now, Nebuchadnezzar reveals that that's actually what he's thinking this ceremony means when he challenges the Israelites in verse 15. He says to the Hebrew young men, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying to them, My power and my will are supreme. There isn't anyone over me. There's no one who can stop me. I alone decide your fate because I alone am on top. There's no God who's mightier than me in this matter over your lives. And so chapter 3 puts us in the realm of first commandment issues. Remember Israel's backstory. When God rescued them out of slavery and brought them out of Egypt, the very first command that he gave them was, you shall have no other gods before me. Here's Nebuchadnezzar directly challenging God's place in the lives of his people. Now, this is not the first thing that he did when the Israelites arrived in Babylon, but it's always been out there hovering on the horizon. The conflict was inevitable because God's agenda made it inevitable. His people could not avoid this challenge to their faith, and you can't either. When God decided to put you in your family in your school, in your university, in your career, in your society, he decided that you would face this kind of challenge for your loyalty, that you would have to demonstrate publicly who has the most say in your life, either God or something else. And if you haven't faced this challenge yet, get ready, because you will. If you have faced it already, stay ready, because you're going to face it again. And so we're looking today at chapter 3, wanting to help us be ready to face this challenge when it comes. And to do that, we want to see, learn three things here. Number one, we need to understand the cost of faith. That there is a cost to it in whatever society God puts us in. Second, we need to understand the confidence of faith. We need to understand what it is that we're putting our faith in. And then third, we need to understand the reward of faith. We want to understand what is the payoff for being faithful. So today, the cost of faith, the confidence of faith, and the reward of faith. First, we have to realize that in this world, there is an unavoidable cost to faith, that you cannot come to Christ. You cannot be embraced by him. You cannot call him your Lord. You cannot bow to him and say, Jesus, you win. (laughs) You call the shots now in my life, just like the apostle Peter said, because you alone have the words of life. You alone make sense out of life. You alone are what I need. You cannot say that to Jesus and have the world leave you alone. It will pressure you in some way to let something else get in between you and Christ. You will find pressure then in this life to put something else or someone else in that primal spot so that what they say overrides what God has said. Now, that pressure can come from multiple directions. It can come from things like authority. In verse 5, and again, we didn't read this, but in verse 5, after the civil servants are summoned to the dedication of this image, they're told, When you hear the sound of every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. They're told, This is the way it is, authority. This is part of what it means for someone in your position. You need to set aside your personal beliefs in this moment, and you need to do this other thing instead. Pressure to compromise your faith comes from being told what to do, from some authority other than God. But it also comes from social conformity. Get the picture here. Here are God's people out on a plane. They're surrounded by a crowd. And then all at the same moment, Everyone, everyone around them simultaneously bows down. All the rest of the people are doing the same thing. And when that happens, when you're in a crowd, you can almost feel your knees starting to give. There's a pressure to join in that's extremely hard to resist. And you know what this is like. When you're in a conference room with your colleagues or you're in a classroom with other students and and an issue is on the table and you're debating this issue and everybody else in the room all stands on one side of the room and you're on the other, there's an incredible pressure on you to come and join them, to cross the room. In this world you will experience the pressure of social conformity to change your views of what this world is like, to compromise what you believe, to bow to some other God. You'll feel that in person. You can feel that in just through things like social media. You feel the pressure to go along with all of those other voices, to adjust your thinking to theirs, even if it leads you away from what God has said. There's pressure from authority. There's social conformity. And then there's the pressure that comes from intimidation. Verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, Here's your choice. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There's not just positive pressure in your life. Do this. Believe this. Get behind this idea. Get behind this program. Do this because I said so and because everyone else is doing it. There's not just positive pressure that you'll face, but there's also this negative pressure. Do this because if you don't, you're going to pay. You may not pay with your life, though countless numbers of God's people have, many more will in the future, but you can pay for it by being cut out of things, not being in line for that promotion that you wanted, not offered important projects, ostracized from meetings not invited to social gatherings, not invited to networking opportunities, things that would help you move forward in your career or things that might even make you feel welcomed and wanted in your neighborhood. If you embrace God and his agenda, his concern for the nations, it means that you're embracing a life that comes with this kind of pressure, pressure that will try to get you to compromise your faith, to loosen your commitment to what God has said by urging you, pressuring you, to say or do something that goes against what he said, urging you to worship something else more than you worship him. That's the cost of faith. Now, that's a cost that's easy to miss. See, in this passage, it's very easy to say, oh, well, the cost is getting thrown into the furnace. That's true, but that's the final cost. All of the rest of this pressure is part of that cost as well, and that's a cost that you have to pay too. It's the cost that comes from living in this world that daily tries, you to, tries to get you to conform to its values, to worship what it worships, to put as first and most fundamental what it does. That's the real cost of faith. And it's a cost that you and I need to count, to assess, to think about, to realize that it's coming and to not shy away from just because it's coming. And here you realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego plot a really important course for us. They do not go out of their way to seek death. They're not out there on the plane calling attention to themselves to how they're disobeying the king's command. They're not painting a target on their chest. Others are doing that for them. Others who have their own agenda. Verse 8, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Malicious. They have it out for the Jews. There's this antagonism that we've talked about before. There's some hints in verse 12 that they're motivated by racism, by professional jealousy. But the point is God's people did not go out there looking for this kind of attention. It came looking for them. They didn't go looking for it. But once they got it, they didn't back down from it either. They're not seeking death. They're not trying to be martyrs. They're also not cowering from death. They've accepted the reality that has always been true of God's people. This is a truth that the Apostle Paul will make very explicit. In the book of Acts, he and Barnabas revisited several cities. They'd been out on a mission trip sent from Antioch, the place that Luke referenced earlier. They'd been sent from Antioch, and they were coming back along that missionary journey, and they were revisiting cities where people had become Christians they did this chapter 14 to strengthen the souls of the disciples encourage them to continue in the faith and they said to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god make sure you hear what they thought was really important for very young believers to understand they needed someone to strengthen their souls they needed encouragement to keep growing in the faith and they needed to know that they would have to go through many, not a few, many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Many hardships. That's part of the cost of being a child of God in this world. It was true in Daniel's day. It was true in Paul and Barnabas' day. And it's true in yours and my day as well. It's a cost you need to expect. And it's a cost you have to be ready to pay because it's a cost that comes from God's agenda of placing you where he has, you will not avoid this cost if you're one of God's children. That's point one, the cost of faith. Point two, the confidence of faith. What do we put our trust in? Now, obviously, we're trusting God, but what are we trusting God for? Let's answer it in the negative first. The Hebrew young men are not trusting God to make everything in their lives work out well here on earth. They tell the king, verse 17, if this be so, if you're going to throw us into a burning furnace for not worshiping your image, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, what did they just say? They just said, we don't know the future. We don't know what God is planning to do. We know that he can deliver us from the fire, that he has the ability, but we don't know if that fits into his best plan. And so we are not going to bet our souls on him doing it. We don't know what His will is for our lives in the short term, and so we're not going to base our commitment to Him, our faith in Him, on whether or not we get the outcome that we want. They recognize that God's good will for them might include the furnace. It might lead them to the furnace, not away from it. They recognize that God's best plans for them and for the people around them might not come apart from the furnace, that the furnace might be a necessary part of what God's doing. They recognize the truth that a pastor, John Newton, almost 2,000 years later, would summarize by saying, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Brothers and sisters, everything that God sends your way is necessary. It's necessary for your spiritual growth. It's necessary for his plans to come about through your life. Everything is necessary, even if it includes a furnace. And so the Hebrew young men are actually answering the question here. How do we talk about the will of God in our lives? What is our confidence in is it in the outcome, the result of what happens to us? Or is it in something else? And they make a distinction here that theologians will formalize later, the distinction that there are two different ways to talk about the will of God. You can talk about how some of his will is hidden and how some of his will is revealed. The part that is hidden is God's particular plans that he has for you and for your life, for what you'll do in life and for what will happen to you, for how your life will affect others and how it will be affected by others. That part is hidden, which means what? God hasn't told you what that is. But there's also a revealed part of his will, a part that he has told you, what it is that he desires for from you, a part where he has told you what his will is for you, and that involves how you live here on this earth, how you relate to him, how you relate to others. That part of his will is very clear. We find that part in the scripture. In other words, God tells you how you should live your life, what his will is for you, what you should do and what you should not do, but he does not tell you what will happen to you based on whether or not you obey him. And the Hebrew young men understand this. And so they tell the king, we know what God's revealed will is for us, that we should have no other gods before us, and so we will not bow down to your image, even though we don't know what God will do next, which just might mean that we end up in the furnace. And if we do, then we know it's necessary to accomplish his purposes. They obey God based on what he has revealed, what he's made clear, not on what still remains hidden. Now, if you want a picture for this, I recently reread C.S. Lewis's fictional book, The Silver Chair. It's part of his Narnia series, and I, I do this periodically because I have found that there is an awful lot of good theology in Lewis's fiction. It's funny, when I started to read his essays a number of years later, I discovered that I'd already learned a lot of what's in his essays because he's incorporated it in his fiction. Let me just take an aside here. Parents, if you're looking for a way to disciple your children, to help them learn theology and to uh, have a sense of what it means for life, his Narnia series is a good place to start. You can read it out loud with your kids. You can recommend it to them. I have done this. I I bought a set one year, and I just left it out on the coffee table and let the kids see me reading the books through, and uh, they started picking them up on their own. I've done this uh, when we've gone on vacation a number of times, where I've bought several other of Lewis's fictional works and left them out, and you watch people pick them up and read them throughout the week. As with everything, there are parts in it where you think, "Ah, I don't know, that doesn't sound quite right, but on the whole i highly recommend the narnia series and his other fiction anyway toward the end of the silver chair there's a lot of danger the protagonists have just killed the evil witch queen and now that her power is broken her realm is starting to break apart it's very dark out the sea is rising quickly it's going to cut them off the city appears to be on fire there are potential enemies that are darting in and out of the shadows the heroes now have to journey through all of that in order to get home to where their friends are. But before they start, Prince Rilian turns to them and says, Aslan, who's the Christ figure, Aslan will be our good lord, listen to this, whether he means us to live or die. Aslan will be our good lord whether he means us to live or die. What's Rilian's confidence in? It's not in a good outcome. They might live or they might die. There's no way to know which is going to happen because the future is hidden, and so either is possible. But the outcome does not determine what they think about Aslan, what kind of confidence they have in him, because the outcome, the result, does not make Aslan good or bad. Their confidence is not in a good outcome. Their confidence is in a good king. Because if their king is good, then even if they die, they're going to be with a good king, which is a good outcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know this. They know that God can deliver them from death, but that he might not. Either way, they've decided to obey him while trusting in him for the future because they know he's a good king. Their faith is in him and his goodness, not in what he allows To happen in their lives so first your faith will cost you in this life second your faith must be in what God has told you to do not in what happens to you so third what do you get (laughs) for confidently paying this cost what's the reward now God does reward this kind of faith when it costs you but don't be confused It's really easy to look past the main thing that God gives in this passage, especially if you're still caught up in having a good outcome. If a good outcome is what's most important to you, then you will interpret this passage through a good outcome, and you'll think, okay, these guys were faithful. They obeyed God. They trusted him. He kept the fire from burning them. I guess I can believe that he'll do that in my life too. That is not what this passage is teaching you to expect. It's not what God's people have experienced down through the ages. Oftentimes, God has not kept his people from harm. Remember what Paul told us earlier in the book of Acts, that we should expect to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God? Now, you can see that actually in the book of Daniel as well, that you should not expect God to keep you safe from harm at all times. If that was God's intention, his number one overarching intention, if keeping his people from being burned was his entire goal, There were a lot of ways to do that that did not involve them ever getting near the furnace. He could have killed Nebuchadnezzar, struck him down with some kind of disease, given him a heart attack, something else, but God didn't do that. Or he could have sent a strong wind out of heaven and just blown the fire out in the furnace. If his goal was merely to keep his people from burning, there were a whole lot of other options. But if he took any of those options, something would be lost. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he was astonished. He rose up in haste. Something caught his attention that he wasn't expecting. Yes, the three men were no longer bound. They're walking around the fire, but there's something else there as well. This fourth man who looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He's amazed. There's someone in the furnace who's clearly not human. Now, this clearly is also a bit of a mystery in this section. He looks like a man, but he's more than a man. There's something of God's presence about him. Either an angel or God himself is now with these people. And that's what God does promise. That's what the passage is trying to teach you. That when you obey God, out of love and respect for him, you can count on having him with you. You can count on not being alone as you face the cost because he'll be there with you. And his presence will give you whatever you need to endure that cost. That's what God promises in the book of First Peter. Chapter 4 tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, don't be surprised that there's a cost. Expect it. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Expect there to be a cost and then pay the cost with joy. Rejoice. Why? Next verse, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's Peter saying? He's saying that when you are pushed away by the people around you, when you're insulted by them because of your commitment to Christ, because your love for God alienates you from your society, because your love for God causes you to suffer, God himself makes up for that suffering. He makes up for that alienation. He comes close to you. There is a special joining of his spirit with you that takes place when you're insulted for his sake. A special way in which the spirit of glory and of grace rests upon you. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's experience. They were insulted for their commitment to God and they paid for it. They suffered for it. But it was in that suffering that they found a special presence of God with them. A presence that they could not have had any other way. And that's a presence that you can count on too. Maybe not in the same kind of way. See, this passage does give us a promise, but it also gives us a little bit of a mystery here. It promises you the presence and the comfort of God. It doesn't tell you exactly how to expect that. For that, you have to embrace the cost and you have to have that experience yourself. Do you see now why the young men didn't give in earlier? Why they weren't ashamed to be different? Why do they didn't feel like they had to go along with everyone else? Why they didn't have to believe what everybody else believed? Why they didn't have to say and do what everyone else said and did? It's because they knew that there was another community out there and they wanted to fit into that community instead. See, if your society is the only community that there is that you can be part of, It makes sense to do whatever you have to in order to fit in with it, to go along and do what everyone else is doing. But if there is another community, one that is not merely human but also divine, if it's possible to be part of that community, then you do whatever it takes to fit in with them, even if it puts you at odds with the people around you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a different community in mind, a heavenly one, and they are willing to do things that don't fit in with the people even if that costs them because they have their eye on fitting into something better, something that they got to experience while they were still living here on this earth. Now let me ask you, does that excite you? Is that something that makes you think, oh man, (laughs) I am all in. Where do I sign up for this? I want to be part of that community. I want to experience God's presence. Do you have those kinds of thoughts? Does, Does that excite you? The early church had those kinds of thoughts. The author of the letter of Hebrews was talking to people, as he wrote his letter, who knew what that experience was like. People in chapter 10 of his letter who had really suffered after coming to faith but they embraced the cost of faith so willingly that he says to them in verse 34 you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property they had their things taken away from them because their faith put them at odds with their society. They lost their stuff, had it taken away from them, paid a cost for their faith, and they did so joyfully because what they now had was so much better. And I want to ask, Renewal Mainline, is that us? Are we ready to joyfully give up all that we have? We could probably survive losing our stuff, sure. But would we do so joyfully? Would we do so with joy? It's a question I've been asking myself for the last several months. I'm watching our society, and our society looks less tolerant of what God calls us to believe and to do. I watch over the last number of years what's taking place in our courts. I watch what's being taught in the schools at all grades and all levels that goes directly against God's plan for making us male and female. I look at what's coming through our news and our entertainment media that promotes just an incredibly godless worldview. And I want to help us as a church be as ready for whatever future is coming, not scared of that future, but fully believing that God's kingdom will keep growing until it fills the whole earth, despite whatever the other nations are doing. Yet realizing that part of that growth may come because we have to pay a price along the way. A necessary price that God leads us into, a price that's part of his agenda. want to help us get ready to live in whatever world comes ready to live passionately, loving God, loving his people, loving his kingdom, loving this world, loving his agenda, regardless of how tolerant or intolerant our world is. That's what I want, and I keep asking myself, are we Are we ready? Am I? Am I ready? And then I ask, well, what do we need in order to embrace that future, to get ready? to embrace that hidden future, to embrace that hidden future with joy. Here's what we need. We need to be excited by the thought of being with Jesus. Excited. Even if that means meeting him in the fire. If we're excited by him, we can lose everything else with joy because we have him. But if we're not excited by him, not as excited by him as we are excited by the other things in our lives, then we won't have joy. We'll have duty. We'll have obligation. We'll obey because we have to. But obeying because you have to is only going to carry you so far. The path of duty, obeying for the sake of obeying, will never lead to joy. It can't. Joy is not its object. We have to be excited to have Christ. And when we are, we will have joy. So what then does that mean if you're here this morning joyless? If you can't imagine facing a furnace with joy? If you can't imagine joyfully loving a God who calls you to walk through fire for the pleasure of enjoying his company? What do you do if you can't imagine that? If you're not as excited about him as you are about something else in life? The answer is always the same. Then you have to experience him. You have to re-experience him. You have to re-experience what you're being offered. How do you do that? Start by asking yourself, why do we gladly, wholeheartedly have no other gods before us? Why is that? Why is that even if it means that we have to end up meeting him in the fire? Why are we willing to sell all to have it taken from us and give everything up with joy? Because he created us and has the right to tell us what to value and what to do? Yes, but if that's all you're thinking, then you will meet him in the fire out of obligation. And you'll think it's unfair. You'll think he's asking too much, that he's mean, that he's sadistic to even ask that of you. And that'll give you no reason then to actually want to meet him. You'll have to be dragged there, kicking and screaming. But if you think about why he's there in the first place, if you think about the fact that he doesn't have to be there, that starts to put you on a very different road. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had died in the furnace, it would only be what they deserved as members of the human race. It would only be just and reasonable. God has been very clear. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins shall die. The person who does not want the eternal beauty and goodness of the God who made them more than they want anything else that that God has made, that person doesn't deserve to live. They deserve to die. They want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the one who made everything. They want a life without him. But there is no life without him because nothing exists without him. There is no universe without him. To want a life without him means you want no life. God says to people who want that, okay, you can have that. It's not life, it's not good, but you can have it. The soul that sins, the soul that rejects me, who doesn't want me, the soul that sins will die. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, it's only what they deserve. They're not in Babylon because they're righteous. They're there because they and all of their ancestors valued something more than they valued God. They put another God in front of the real one. They broke the first commandment, and so they deserve to die. They deserve the furnace, just like I do, just like you do. But there's a fourth man in the furnace who doesn't deserve to be there. He walked through fire and on burning coals when he didn't have to. Why? He did it to be where they were, to be with them. They deserved the fire, we all do, but he wanted them to have something much more than they deserved. And so he didn't save them from the fire, from having to go into it. He saved them in the fire. He saved them from being destroyed by the fire. And it wasn't the last time that he did so. On the cross, Jesus faced the white hot heat of God's wrath infinitely hotter than any furnace could ever be. God's wrath against every time when you thought that being with him was not worth very much. Certainly not worth what you knew it would cost. Jesus faced God's wrath for every time that you refused to pay the cost, for every time that you put something else before him. When something else was more special to you than he was, every time that you compromised with the world around you, Jesus went through that wrath. He descended into the burning hell of God's anger, only this time on the cross, not to come be where you were, but to guarantee that you would never have to be there in the first place, that you would never face that kind of burning. Regardless of whatever suffering you go through here on earth, Jesus walked through the flames and the fire of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. He walked through the fire to be with you because he wanted you to be with him. No one else has ever sacrificed that much for you. No one else has ever loved you that much. No king, no government, no state, not your wife, your husband, your kids, not your parents, your career, your philosophy, your house, nothing. Why do people value Jesus so highly that they would pay any cost to have his company? It's because they know the cost he paid to have theirs. They know the kind of God that he is, that he's good. One who would rather die for his people than have them die apart from him. Focus your mind, focus your heart there on what he's done. Think about it, meditate on it. Talk with him about it. Let the reality of what he's done reset you, realign you. Let it help you realize it's not you who walked through fire to get to God, but it's him who already did walk through fire to get to you. Let that reality start to soak down inside of you until you start to understand what it is that you're being offered a chance to be with someone like this, a chance to be with someone who has that kind of love. Let the reality of that offer melt your heart so that you want him like he's wanted you. And when you do that, your hands will loosen up on everything that you're holding on to. You'll willingly face it all joyfully because you don't want anything getting in between him and you. You don't want any other God before you, regardless of whatever it cost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take yourself, please, up out of the pages of history, out of the pages of our Bibles. Come, Lord, and give us that experience in our hearts, that ex- sense of what your love really means a sense of how much you've poured yourself out for us. Lord, let us not think that, <laughs> that, that, that in faith we pay the bigger part. We don't, Lord. You're the reward for us. You're the one who has come to us and given up everything for us. Lord God, let our community feel that today. In Jesus' name, amen.